This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Sleep hot. Mattress Firm's sleep experts can match you with a cooling mattress from the Temper Breeze Collection from Tempur-Pedic, so you can experience measurably cooler sleep all night. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night. I'm Scott Detrow. There's so much political news to follow these days, but you don't have to keep up with all of it. You just have to keep up with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. With a team of NPR political reporters and editors, we record two episodes a week and sometimes more when the big news happens. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for a deep dive. Today, I am talking with an author who just released a book that is very political, even though he didn't mean for it to be that way. Daniel Alarcon is the author. His new book is called The Cane is Always Above the People. It's a collection of 10 short stories, all fiction, and it's kind of required reading for this political moment that we find ourselves in right now. The stories talk about the Latino experience, the immigrant experience, and mostly just what it means to move, to leave one place for somewhere else. At a time when there's a lot of political chatter about things like building a wall or whether we let certain people stay in America, this book by Alarcon and these stories of fiction, they really get at some of the truths in what it means to be an immigrant today. So Alarcon himself has bounced around. He's Peruvian, but he immigrated to Birmingham, Alabama at the age of three. He moved back to Peru and then he moved to Iowa to study writing. He now lives in New York City. And Alicone does not just write. He is a radio guy as well. He hosts an NPR podcast called Radio Ambulante. All right, there's a lot in this chat. It's kind of heavy, but I think it is worthwhile. This chat in this book, it changed the way I think about what it means to be an immigrant. And I think it might do the same for you. Here's me talking with Daniel Alarcone. Enjoy. <laughs> I mean, I do remember a couple things from when I first moved to Iowa. I remember I got pulled over like three times in the first month because I was still driving like I drive in Lima. Uh, <laughs> which is what which I is, explain. Which, which is just, you know, aggressive and um, the stop sign is a suggestion. You know, not really. <laughs> the joke in Peru is that the stop sign doesn't say stop. It says look. You know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so there was that. And then there was something else that happened. When I was living in Lima, I was in a you know, pretty rough part of town. And, uh, you know, you just never had anything in your car. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I got to Iowa for the first month or six weeks, I just, you know, had my car was immaculate, you know, everything was in the <laughs> trunk. And, you know, it's I, too and then cold I, to, to rob a car in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, too, it's just too nice. I mean, no one, no one does it. Like, but, you know, and, huh. and I just, uh, it took me to realize that, that 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 wasn't a thing anymore, that, oh, you can leave your backpack in the back seat. No one's going to take it. So you've experienced migration firsthand. That's a big theme in the book, migration. It comes up in most of the stories. And it's hard. Wandering is hard. Immigrating is hard. It's just hard. And I feel like as someone who was born an American, the story that we get on immigration, on migration, on moving, it's like, yeah, it's hard, but it all works out. Mm. And so many of your stories about movement in this book kind of point to the hardness of it and how it might not actually be happily ever after. I love that you did that. And, you know, like... There is this sanitized version, I think, of the immigrant story in which, like, you work hard and everything's great. And, like, your mm-hmm. book is kind of like, eh, maybe not. 
maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's true. I think if it were that easy, then maybe we wouldn't be having some of the conversations we're having. You know, I think which that, conversations? Uh, I mean, that if if every immigrant arrived and had this kind of speed bump free assimilation into the sanitized and idealized version of the American dream, then it wouldn't be quite so uh, controversial to say, like, I support the dreamers, you know, or something mm. like that. I don't know. I, I think that reinvention is hard. You know, even if you're even if you're moving within borders, I mean, let's be honest, like, if you you know, uh, Americans move for work all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I think everyone who's moved to a different city for a job and tried to find their place socially and culturally in a new place can attest to like, well, that's a challenge. Yeah. You know, that's not necessarily easy. Oh, I got to find the new apartment. I got to find the new friends. Now do that in a totally different language, in a totally mm. different city, without a safety net, without anyone to call. Plus you've got to like, you know, everything you earn, you've got to send half of it back home to support your family mm. that couldn't make it. I mean, just put it in perspective, people. Like this is not easy. Then add to that the the cultural reinvention the personal reinvention that will necessarily happen and how complicated it, on a personal level it can be to sort of rewrite your own personal story of who you are, you know? And and then when you get to the United States, no one wants to hear how, how traumatic that journey was. Mm. But we know because, you know, many intrepid journalists have covered it and many people have it's spoken hard. out about their own experiences. Yeah. It's tremendously hard. It's treacherous. It's dangerous. You know, the stats are, are outrageous, you know, yeah. of like... People who don't make it and, you know, women who get um, assaulted and, um, you know, people who get robbed. And, you know, we hear it all the time, but it just doesn't process. And once you get here, you're supposed to suddenly be... You're supposed to be a dreamer. You're supposed to be, like, (laughs) an example of, like, perfect citizenhood. Right. You're supposed to be, like, more American than, 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 like, apple pie. Exactly. Exactly. Did you feel those pressures? No. My story is, is one of great privilege. My story is one of my parents came to, you know, they, they, they won scholarships to go to Johns Hopkins. They came and studied. They went back to Peru. And then uh, one of my father's, uh, my parents' classmates ended up at UAB in Birmingham and, and recruited them to come. And they thought about it for like seven years. They're like, where's Alabama again? And then, <laughs> and then they were like, you know what, let's do it. Not for us, you know, but for the opportunities that it'll give our children. And then that's what they did. That's a common immigrant story as well. It's not the same as the story that I was describing of undocumented minor crossing from Honduras or El Salvador or whatever. Did you feel the same um, kind of pressure, though, to be uber-American? I didn't feel the pressure, but I, I was and am yeah. very American. You yeah. know, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't feel like pressure. It felt like I had a really nice childhood. I had really good friends. I had a sense of uh, there was space for me. You know, one of the things that I never thought about in terms of immigrating somewhere while reading your book— the questions and expectations of the people you leave behind. I think so much of what we hear about moving somewhere is the new life you build once you get there. But there's so much in this book about what the people you leave behind expect from you. Yeah. You, your challenge is not just to build a new life for yourself in this place you end up. It is to make sure your parents are happy with what you become in that place. And it it's seems a like it's a, it's a lot of pressure. And like, your characters never really make their families completely happy. Do you think that's usually the case? Yeah, I have a good friend. Uh, when I when I after college, one of my first jobs was a post school teacher, and uh, and I became really good friends with the Spanish teacher who was named Carlos, who was uh, Colombian, he came to the United States, mm-hmm. and he told me he was like, you know, like when I go back to Colombia, like my family members ask me, like if they're gonna buy a car, like they want my opinion. 
Hmm. They're trying to like figure out where to send like their you know their kid to school, like you know grade school. They ask my opinion. They want my opinion on everything, and suddenly, just by virtue of of living in the United States, I've been afforded this expert status that I have no business having. You know, this guy was a Spanish teacher at a public school in New York City. Like, why would he have any special expertise about what kind of car you should buy? <laughs> you know. Yeah. But there was just this respect given him to him by virtue of just living in New York. Um, it's almost like you owe people their dreams. You know, yeah. they have a dream. And you owe that to them to do it. You know, and I, I remember my, my, my father used to live in Atlanta for a while. And he had a very successful career as a psychiatrist at UAB and later at Emory. Um, all of which was all, it was all fine and good. And then a couple of times being in Atlanta, he was asked to come in and, and, and talk about some aspect of mental health on CNN in Spanish which is based in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And, you know, in TV, this is based on, yeah, they want to hear you talk, but it's also on, like, who's available and who lives in Atlanta, uh-huh. you know? I mean, and my dad has done a number of things that are incredibly impressive and written books and do things, you know, been a great teacher and a great professional in any number of ways. It wasn't until he was on a, on CNN in Spanish, you know, for, like, four minutes talking about whatever that people back home were like, oh, my God, <laughs> he made it, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's finally um, arrived. He's finally arrived, and it's like, uh, you know, it's at been, that point he's he was, been arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's but it's like what 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 is it about you do what you do that can be explained to people back home? You know, yeah. there's a story in the collection called the Provincials. Oh yeah, it's a father and a son. They go back to the father's hometown to sort of dispose of some property, and they run into the father's sort of old friends. This happened to me. You know, I was in the town called Moyendo, uh, and I was paraded around the plaza. This is Renato's son. This is Renato's son, and everyone's like, "Oh, your father was so smart." Your father was so brilliant, you know, like, and the the sense was one both of pride and and a, and then a little bit of tension there too. Yeah, you know, I feel like there are characters in this book. They expect so much from that new place they go to, and that place underwhelms. Or their family expects so much of them once they go to this new place, and they underwhelm their family. Or we expect a certain magic in the place we end up and that underwhelms us like it was it just underlined for me this kind of theme like don't expect life or people to be awesome or fair don't expect it to be great like sometimes things are just adequate or less than adequate and that's the way it's going to (laughs) be were you trying to put that message out in the world with this book no i was just i was just trying to write a book that wasn't boring you know and and uh and if everything works out in a story then it isn't that interesting might sell more but i think it's fundamentally not interesting i'm more interested in in, in how things don't work out i think it makes for a better story i i think there there is a there's a sort of the version of immigration where everything works out and it's like oh, a, yeah. a beautiful a beautiful story and 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 like american triumph and you know i've been seeing on tv a lot these uh i think it's negra modelo so these, these like beer commercials where it's like you know so and so worked really hard, and you know his parents were this, and now you know he's he drinks this beer in a big house, you know, and that's a fine story. It's so it's true often, but it's not mm-hmm. always true. Yeah. Um, and you know the perils of reinvention and the perils of adjusting and the the perils of 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 dreaming big are that you can also be disappointed big. Are you disappointed? No, no, I'm so lucky. I can't even fathom my good fortune. Mm. So then, how do you get in the head of these disappointing and disappointed people for your books? Well, because I, um, I I really like to listen to people and people tell me stories. 
I mean, there, there's something that I have from when I was a kid and from from the point at which, you know, Peru went through a terrible period when I was growing up safe and sound in Hoover, Alabama. And I've carried this with me ever since, this kind of survivor's guilt, this kind of sense of like, I got so lucky and there was no reason or justification or explanation for it. Mm. My parents left in 1980, the year the war started uh, in earnest, and we did not know that that was happening. It was an accident. And meanwhile, what was my childhood, which was, you know, kind of typical American suburban childhood. uh, Meanwhile, in in Lima and in Arequipa and the different towns around Peru, there was the economy was collapsing. You know, there were car bombs and power outages and kidnappings and political assassinations and tumult. You know, it was just this sense uh, that I had of of survivor's guilt. It's always Mm. I've always been interested in in other people's Mm. stories. Uh, I think my story is probably kind of boring, and I'm interested in other people who have more interesting stories to tell than I do. Mm. And that's what I've sort of dedicated my professional life to doing, either in fiction yeah. or, or nonfiction. Yeah. Do you still feel survivor's guilt? I think maybe guilt is the wrong word now. Okay. I, I, I don't think guilt is a, is often such a useful emotion. Survivor's empathy maybe would be. Okay, okay. Maybe yeah. let, let me rebrand it as that, if uh-huh. you'll allow me. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I still sort of feel a connection I do. I do. I feel very much not being a religious person. I feel very much that that things are feel very arbitrary, and you can you can see people getting the short end of the stick for no other reason than just where they were born and to whom they were born. Mm. And I, you, I don't. I don't feel like you can be a sensitive person and not and not be in awe of your of how arbitrary things are, and be, yeah. and and be in my position, and not be in awe of your own good fortune, and then try to work hard to earn it. Yeah. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, what it means to be an immigrant today. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper. Most couples aren't gifting each other stationery, but Discover is following this anniversary tradition for its new card members. At the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you earned dollar for dollar. No caps and no cash. That's a paper anniversary gift in the form of a cash back bonus. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Cash back match offer only for new card members. Limitations apply. Support also comes from the NPR Wine Club. Discover hand-selected wines from award-winning vineyards around the world. Learn the stories behind each one and enjoy unique bottles inspired by your favorite NPR shows, all with the convenience of home delivery. A special welcome offer includes a bottle of weekend edition Cabernet Sauvignon. If you're 21 years or older, join in the fun at nprwineclub.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, streaming acclaimed original series you won't find anywhere else. With powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, Matthew McFadden, and more. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, close your eyes for a second. 
Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. You ever find yourself in a conversation about race and identity where you just get stuck? NPR's Code Switch Podcast can help. I'm Gene Demby. Code Switch is a podcast that helps us understand how race and identity crash into everything else in our lives, including how a diverse and creative generation of writers and actors is forging new paths. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. I was thinking today about your book. Like, it is a meditation on lots of things, but very much so a meditation kind of on manhood and what it means to be a man. And I, I came away with this thought kind of like, it's a manly book, but it's also a mannish book. It is a book that has men that I won't say are behaving badly. You can say that. They they aren't living up to the better moral angels of their nature. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what were you trying to say about masculinity and manhood with this book? Well, you know, we have we have and we we should and we do have sort of a code of what we believe is the way you know sort of the ways people should act you know and mm-hmm. the ways people you know men should act and the way men should act towards women and the way men should behave in families and we rightfully have these these codes which you know as we've been seeing in the news are are are, are have been violated in egregious ways by powerful you know despicable men all the time i'm not trying to write a perfect world because that world doesn't exist i'm trying to write you know a version of the world as i see it yeah and so, yeah, I think I can think about a lot of these characters who are yeah. Nelson in the Provincials, for example, you know, is a kind of loudish and immature, you know, and, uh, and just lies. <laughs> like, yeah. he lies. Yeah. But he's also, you know, entertaining and smart and trying to figure out who he is in relationship to his brother and the country where he is now stuck and where he wishes he weren't. And, you know, he's like a lot of people wishes he were someone else and is trying that on. And in the course of trying that on is, yeah, lying a fair amount. But, <laughs> you know, people do that. And it feels like some of the pressure he's under is pressure that is unique to people from families where migration is a theme. Like, he has not left the home country. His brother has. That sets up, you know, some conflict for him. And some of what informs how he thinks of whether or not he's a man is informed by whether or not he got to leave or stay. Like, how much is movement wrapped up in manhood for you? Well, in the case of, in the case of Nelson, it's, it's he, can't, he can't fathom that this is actually his life. Mm. He knows it is because it surrounds him and it's his day-to-day, but he thinks his life is about to begin somewhere else. He thinks mm-hmm. that things are going to change and that his actual life, this is all uh, before the curtain is raised. And uh, and he's in danger of reaching a point where he's like, oh, this was the show. Whoops. You know, and, and, and I think that that's a, a real slippery place to be in. And it's a process of being, you know, of postponing actualization, yeah. of postponing big decisions. Yeah. Um, and it's something he's doing to himself. I want to be clear. It's something he's doing to himself. Not everybody in his position would, would respond this way. But there's a certain immaturity and a certain entitlement that he believes in. Uh, maybe he's not even aware of it. That is leading him into this state of spinning his wheels, you know, almost like a professional stasis, professional and and emotional stasis. 
One of the things you do in this book is you never, ever say exactly the location of Mm -hmm. these stories. Yeah. So I always want sort of the widest lane possible in which to play. And I I think very much of writing fiction as a as a recreational activity for me. It's something that I I have fun doing. And if I'm not having fun doing it, then I don't really see the point. Um, I mean, it's challenging and it's hard, but the satisfaction you get from from having done it is 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 worth it, you know. Um, and by not saying where stories take place and by not pointing out, you know, landmarks and countries and cities and places you can find on the map, I just feel like I like I have a, a broader canvas and fewer restrictions, you know. And the times that I do mention specific places, they're almost designed to make it weirder, you know. Like mm. the story uh, Abraham Lincoln has been shot when I mentioned Chicago and these kind of hipster parties and Abraham Lincoln hanging out at these parties. Like, yeah, that was weird. It's supposed to be disorienting. It's supposed to be like, so, like, what? Huh? what? Well, that whole you story, know, like that... I was like, what? Like, I didn't know what, <laughs> what decade is it in? Yeah, I mean, that's precisely what, what I wanted. I mean, I, okay. I wanted it to be weird. You know, what would it be like to see Abraham Lincoln at a party? With his you know? boyfriend. And what if Abraham, with his boyfriend, yeah. What would it, you know, what would, what would a tender moment between uh, Abraham Lincoln mm. and his lover look like? You know, and how would his lover respond, you know, a decade or two later to the news of his of his assassination? And how would that play out in a historical mashup America if the Civil War were happening right now? Yeah, uh, it was a, a lot. Bunch, it's a bunch of it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, but I can tell you that was one of the stories that I had the most fun writing precisely really? because it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I felt like even in spite of not really knowing exactly where these locations were in the book, for the most part, the majority of them, you know, save for some stuff in, in the Lincoln story, it all felt like it was set in a, how do I say it, a Latino diaspora. Mm-hmm. Like countries and places where people would come from and be in America and be considered Latino. Like it felt very steeped in that. Is that what you were going for? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think that's just where my obsessions are and where my identity is. And, and that's sort of how the stories came out. I don't think that I set out to write a Latino diaspora book, but, you know, you often you do that anyway by accident. Inevitably, every book is a reflection of, of, of who you are. Yeah. How do you think you fit into the Latino diaspora? What is your place in it? I have a lot of affection for the word Latino, even though I recognize that it's a pretty arbitrary construction. Oh yeah, you know, I believe in it, even as I realize that it's it's essentially an, an empty vessel that we can fill with whatever we want. Hmm. So I think with with Radio Ambulante, with my show, uh, one of the things that we try to do is in, sort of interrogate where, you know, all the places that Latinos, uh, in, in you know, come from and uh, and draw connections to here. You know, um, we tell stories from everywhere Spanish is spoken. We sort of think of Spanish as one of the defining features of Latino, even if, you know, not all of our audience. Has Spanish as their first language. Are you conceptualizing what it means to be part of a Latino diaspora differently in this political climate we're in right now, in which, in some ways, this community is under more scrutiny than before? Yeah, and I would say that I don't think that I'm the one who conceptualized it differently. I think that, you know, when the president launches his campaign by saying that Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers— you know, it's like that conceptual work was done. We know that we've seen it, the uh, you know, the, the kind of emboldening of hate speech that's happened in the last year. Um, and so what are you supposed to do as a Peruvian? You're supposed to be like, when someone says, you know, go back to your country, you're supposed to say, well, oh, wait, no, 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 I'm Peruvian, I'm not Mexican. I mm. just want to clarify that. Uh, mm. No, you can't do that. Now you've been all, 
we, we've all been placed in the same category. Mm. And that's just that's just the way it is. And that's not something that I did or or that, you know, and, uh, you know, the you know, Mexican activists did and that's not or, or, or Chicano activists did. That's not something the dreamers did. That's something that was done at the very top from the very beginning of of that campaign. And um, so, yeah, inevitably, I think Ryan Bulante has a has a a role in sort of unpacking that. We've tried to do that. We try to draw connections all the time and tell stories that our audience will find entertaining and illuminating about different aspects of Latino and, and Latin American culture. But, you know, inevitably, there's a, there's a political context in which we're doing. And, you know, every time NPR, you know, tweets out one of our headlines in Spanish, there's often, I would say there's always, you know, four or five, six tweets in response that are really? basically like, you know, go back to your country and like, this is America speaking huh. English and da 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 da. How does that make you feel? Here's the thing, you know, like I've been thinking about, about this a lot with, you know, the take a knee stuff, you know, it's like, I, 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 I really, really respect and under, and understand why people take a knee. I don't, you know, I go to sporting events with my son and I, I, I sing the national anthem and, and, and I, and I sing it because like the country that I'm singing to mm-hmm. is such a beautiful place, man. Mm. That's the, the, like when I, when it's in my, when I'm singing those words and I'm mm-hmm. like, because, you know, people who say mean things to me on Twitter, it's like, I, that's, that's they not just your don't, country. that's not my country. And that's not who they, they don't, they don't, they don't really know who they're talking to. They don't really know what's in my heart. So they don't, I don't, I don't really can't really get offended by that. And, you know, but I, I just, I really, really have a, a bond with this country that I think, I think, but, you know, might, might surprise some of those people who are, who are tweeting like "go back home" or "go to your country" or whatever they might tweet at, at me or Ryan Bulante, you know? And I should also say, like, I've been thinking about this a lot. No one loves this country like immigrants do. Mm. Like Explain. the patriotism that the patriotism that I feel, the patriotism that my parents feel. It's a it's a very special thing, you know. You, you you know you were if you're born in a country, then that's just you're that's it. You're born yeah. there. You know, of course of course you love it. You're born there. If you choose it. And in a sense, if you feel like it chooses you, mm. it's just a totally different thing. You think America chose you? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly. You know, I have been talking with comics a lot recently on the show about how they are changing the way they do their work in light of the current political climate. And some of them have had some really thoughtful ways about using comedy and satire to unite communities that might see no reason to unite and to kind of try to talk to the entire country. What yeah. do you think writers and fiction writers, how has the current political climate changed their role, their work, what they should be trying to do, or has it not? It's funny. You know, I, when, when um, it was maybe like the first or second week of the new administration where I, 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 just, was, I was just thinking, man, like spare a thought for the, for the writer who's like, 400 pages into their debut like dystopian novel you know like, uh, why just like well because you it, it does feel like now that all fiction is dystopian and that all of it pales in some way um to to some of the stuff that's going on i i, I don't know i i don't think it it i don't think it's changed what i've done or what okay. i do okay because because there's lots of ways to i don't think of my 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 art or my writing as having a, a political purpose. I think maybe comics um, might think of it differently. I think that that I I write to entertain myself. I write to to figure out what I think about something. 
I write in order to imagine myself in situations that I would never want to be in. But it's inherently political. How... I mean, like this book is inherently political. You know that, right? Like it's 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 dealing with. I mean, like any book about immigration right now, it's just political. No. Yeah, but when you write it, you're not thinking about that. That's okay. the context in which it's being read. Yeah. But like yeah. I, my 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 work is is listening very carefully to the characters in the in the book and mm. and trying to tell their stories. Mm. Um, maybe in in ways in ways that feel truthful, that in ways they might not even tell them. Mm. You know, I I I, I peek in on their diaries. You know, like I know yeah. them better than they know themselves, yeah. and um, and I'm at the end of the day, what I want to do is entertain myself and entertain you, and 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 hopefully, you know, show you some some truth that you recognize, yeah, about your own life, even if the people yeah. are nothing like you, you know. Mm. True words. All right, you got to go. Last question. I was reading up on you. Mm. Uh, you were asked in an interview over a year ago what book you would have the president read at that point the president was barack obama now we have a new president what book would you make president donald trump read besides your own oh um uh, i you know what uh, I, i'm gonna there's a fantastic book by the, the salvadoran journalist uh, oscar martinez mm-hmm. it's called it's called the beast what's it about it's about uh the train that that crosses mexico that um, that Salvadoran and, and Honduran Guatemalan migrants take to get to the United States. Uh, it's just an extraordinary work of journalism. It's a really extraordinary um, piece of, of, of empathic writing. You know, uh, uh, just getting into the nitty gritty of the stories of, of the people uh, who make that trip and why. And it's that what I mentioned earlier. You know, that trauma that no one wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. Now, now you've made it, and now you're you're not allowed to to complain anymore. And no matter what you live through, and and how traumatized you might be by the journey, um, you're an American now. So you know, buck up and and mm-hmm. and start living the dream. I I had the privilege of, of interviewing Oscar when that book was published, and um, and it's a it's really a, a a book that stayed with me. And I think that not just not just the president, but a lot of lawmakers would do well to go through and read those stories and try to understand exactly what's going on and why. And, and I think that they would, might have a different view about a, a lot of issues around immigration. That was Daniel Alarcone. He is the author of a new book of short stories. It's called The Cane is Always Above the People. It's out now. Go check it out. A note, uh, in our conversation, Daniel recommended a book for the current president, It's called The Beast, Riding the Rails and Dodging Narcos on the Migrant Trail. It's by Oscar Martinez. Daniel also recommended the same book for President Obama. Daniel, thank you for the chat. As always, listeners, we'll be back in your feeds on Friday. We want to hear from you all the time, especially for our long-distance calls that we do every week. You can share with me what's happening in your town, in your city, in your little corner of the world. Just shoot me a note. Email me at samsanders at npr.org. Also, don't forget, this little low podcast that could is on the radio now as well. Make it a part of your weekend routine. Go to npr.org slash stations to see if the show is on near you. That's a wrap. I'm Sam Sanders. Thank you for listening. We'll talk soon.
This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 